Uh, please turn your Bible to, just yeah, go ahead and be seated, and as you do, turn your Bible to the book of Genesis. It will be starting in verse 18 today. We're continuing our study through uh, the book of Genesis since our last uh, our last sermon, looking through the life of Noah and the various parts of his life and his ministry. We've seen God's uh, bringing a flood upon the earth and promising uh, to save Noah and giving him an ark, or he built the ark, God giving the plans for this ark, him building it, being rescued through it, coming off that ark, and the promise of covenant, the promise of a rainbow. Uh, that's the promise is signifying the rainbow and Noah living under that covenant promises, as do all of his descendants, all of us on earth have the reminder of God's covenant love and promise that's available to anyone who would look upon Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We have that reminder every time we see a rainbow of the possibility of salvation. Well, we turn to a bit of life after this, and so let's uh, look at the scripture starting in Genesis 9. I'm going to read 1 through 29, although we'll probably end the sermon look all the way through the end of chapter 10. But I'll just read one, uh, verses 18 through 29 right now. This is God's word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of God. The flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, looking to understand your word, because we know that your word is given to us to direct us how we may live. And so, Father, we hit a variety of different topics when we hit this sermon. Father, there's ones that may be challenging to us in different ways. And we pray, God, that you would lead and guide our own thinking, that we'd think your thoughts after you. We'd know the mind of Christ. We'd know the mind of the scripture. So that, Father, you'd be glorified and honored. We ask you to direct us as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Genesis is a book about how things began, how things started. It's also a question that directs us to the big, to the big questions of life. But it's also a book that talks about some small things and how those small things affected the bigger things and how they brought them to be. And what surprises us often in life is how small things um, can often lead to big consequences. There's a, a scientific theory out there, um, especially in the realm of meteorology, called the butterfly effect. Maybe you've heard of that. Uh, scientists hypothesize that something like a butterfly uh, could have an effect on the weather. The ideas of a butterfly flapping its wings on one side of the earth might um, eventually cause a tornado on the other side of the world. 
It got me thinking with all the weather patterns that we have coming this on us this summer is if the weather we had today in the summer comes as a result of a, of a polar bear burping in Antarctica or something like that. But anyways, the, the, the butterfly effect is it's a part of a theory, uh, theory of science called chaos theory. Speaks about this cause and effect nature of the universe, how small things can uh, cause bigger things and seemingly out of proportion uh, with the initial event. In that idea, there are no little events. I think the scripture bears this out. There are no little events. But I can't begin to understand the theory, um, that chaos theory, but I take one thing out of it. And it's that we don't often know how the little things that we do, they all work together in terms of a bigger plan. Well, God knows these things. Uh, we don't see the connections, but he does see the connection things. Now, it's our job to, to look in the connections as we can and look forward, uh, but these are things that we know that God knows. In fact, we probably see this in our own families, right? Uh, one little decision can affect the way that everything else works. You think of a family vacation, right? Have you ever gone on a family vacation or maybe having a family visit and it explodes or it goes off the rails just because of one careless comment, one selfish decision? One person decides to do that and a fight ensues and before you know it, the whole vacation or the whole day is put off. One little decision can affect all kinds of things going downstream. So today what we're going to do is we're going to see some of the big questions of life in the world, we're also going to see how one decision really kind of got the bull ball rolling. Now, the big question is in the diversity of nations, where all these nations come from, right? That's, if you look at our text in verse 18, or verse 19, it says, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. If you go into chapter 10, you'll see this, we're called table of nations. We'll get that in a minute. We see this big diversity of nations. We look around our world today. We hear the news headlines. We pray for nations. As we get to know people who are very different from us. We're going to be looking more of this over the next uh, couple weeks as well. Um, but, you know, where, where did these come from? And what we're going to see, in part, that the diversity of these nations and even some of the angst became in one night of a foolish decision. Now, who is it that made the foolish decision? Well, it was Noah. Well, I mean, the Noah that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, the creator of the ark, the rescuer of humanity, the one that God made his covenant with, the one who saved the animals of the world. I mean, he is the one in whom Hebrews chapter 11 says, by faith, Noah, be warned by God concerning of events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And yet, despite this statement of his faith, um, being part of this hall of faithful heroes, uh, today we see the sinful fallen side of him. Now, this brings up a really important matter for us, especially in our own day-to-day -day thinking. What do we do when we see the sin and failure of our historical figures? What do we do with those, with the sinfulness of those who've made a significant difference in our life, or in the life of the church, or, or, or in the world, but also carried with them significant bits of sin? Do we just write them off? That's what our culture, especially in cancel culture, wants to do with many of our great historical figures, speaking badly of them, dismissing them, killing them off in our hearts. Now, on the other hand, that if we totally ignore the faults of others, and emulate them and their bad behaviors? Do we enable bad behavior or just uh, gloss over things which had to be addressed? You know, those are things that we do. We also address those things, 
we're going to do a little bit of that today. It's because the Bible, with all of its portraits, it provides a worldview that is capable of handling the matters of sin, the matters of offense, and yet recognizing that God uses some of the most unlikely people and even sinful, fallen, and undeserving people to accomplish his purposes. It's because God uses people like you and me. We can see throughout the Bible uh, people with uh, great virtue, people um, who have done great things for the kingdom of God, and yet we also see them with great vice. We can see it in the life of Abraham. We can see the life of Moses, the life of King David, the life of the Apostle Paul, and even in, as in our story today, the life of Noah. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is exempt from this. Only he is sinless. And the Bible is pretty raw about the weakness of God's people. It's one of the things that bears mark to its authenticity. It speaks honestly about the, the, the people of whom God uses. And that's all of them except for Jesus, of course. We'll talk about him in a minute. But that's why as Christians we are hesitant to cancel people, to, to jump into cancel culture. Martin Luther did a great work in reclaiming the gospel in the Reformation. But he also wrote some awful things about the Jews. We recognize him for the things that he did, and we don't cancel him for the others while recognizing the faults in some of the things that he said. George Whitfield was an early evangelist inside of America and did a great work in the evangelization of, of, our, of our nation before we were a nation. But sadly, he purchased slaves, regretfully, terribly. We see what God did through him, and we still point out the bad. Martin Luther King Jr. did great work for civil rights in our country, but he lived short of the virtuous life we would expect of a Christian pastor. We honor how he helped our, our nation wrestle with some of the most important things. And so as Christians, we honor those who take what is good and glorifying and honoring to God. And we rejoice in God's work in those things, even as we speak about evil and we speak about sin as being sin, even when it happens in the life of our leaders. This is because history is God's story, and even in the life of our leaders. History is God's story. It's not just man's story. And we celebrate what God is doing, not just what man has done. And we know that our leaders have feet of clay. And so we how we handle the, the sin of others, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in our own lives. Would we be so self-righteous as to think that we do not have the same faults of those who've gone before us? But it also matters that we don't enable sinful behavior by ignoring what's wrong in the past and repeating it in the future. What we do, and this is important, is we eradicate the vice of our forefathers, but we emulate them in their virtue. So how do we consider the sins of others? I want to look at three things today as we look at the story of Noah. Now, the first thing is we're not surprised by sin even in the most godly. As I read this story, um, as the author put, as, as I read it, I, I sense being put in this moral dilemma. You know, what, what would we do if we saw Noah in this condition? After the flood, Noah went to work. He went into agriculture, um, apparently to provide food for him and his family. And part of his work ended up in the creation of a vineyard and then of making wine. We see this in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, this expression, lay uncovered, it points out that this was a degrading behavior. Passages like Habakkuk 2.15, it speaks about the degradation of drinking and nakedness. And while alcohol is not always spoken about negatively, when it's connected with nakedness, it is always spoken about as, as negative. And you can imagine why. 
Habakkuk 2.15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And so we see, even as Genesis speaks about this event, it's not speaking of Noah's crowning moment. The wine affects him like it does many. It it removes God-given inhibitions and leaves him at his base nature. This is something that continues even to this day. You probably know somebody whose life or their family has been affected and negatively by the use of alcohol. Some people treat the use of drugs and alcohol as freeing. They, they feel limited in life, just by life and its circumstances, and the drinking makes them feel finally free. They feel sad, and, and the drugs take those bad feelings away. One question I ponder is, what if those inhibitions, and what if that modesty, and what are those natural emotions that go part of life or part of what it means to be authentically human? What if those bad feelings go along with the good parts about being a human being? People often will use alcohol to get rid of what makes them authentically human, the, the hurts and the pains, the difficulties and the challenges. The use of drugs and alcohol to escape ourselves or our problems or to become something or not, these leave us like Noah, degrading ourselves and separated from our humanity. In fact, I saw a headline today that over 2021, I think it was 101,230 people died of drug-related deaths um, over the, over the course of the year. That's the first time we've surpassed 101,000 drug-related deaths. Who knows how many alcohol-related deaths there were over the last year. Um, but I know there was a lot. Now, in a group like this, I am sure that there are some who have a bad relationship with alcohol. Now, I do know this, is that you do not need to drink alcohol. And I, I do earnestly believe this, that alcohol adds nothing to your life that you cannot find other ways. In fact, alcohol has the power of taking away far more things than it can ever promise or give. It takes away health, it steals good sleep, it ruins our mood, it wrecks relationships, it creates slaves of too many people. That's why passages like Ephesians 5.18, you know, speak about um, even being confident without alcohol. You can deal with life's problems with your relationship with God by being filled with the Holy Spirit. It speaks about being able to be truly joyful through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, the things that people often uh, use drinking to do, you know, the, the real felt needs that are there, you know, those can be found by the Holy Spirit. Bring a joy, bring a confidence, bring a hope that spurs on life and leads us in the paths of righteousness. I mean, the biblical rule is don't be drunk. I mean, there really is no question about that. And if, if drinking leads to drunkenness, you know, that is something that needs to be repented of before the Lord or before others. And if it is an ongoing issue, it needs to stop. I mean, it's a commandment from the Bible. Dump it out and stop it. I don't, I don't think there's a commandment against all drinking. Some people would say that Noah would have lost his salvation by drinking or becoming drunk. I think Hebrews 11.7 puts you know, Noah in the Hall of Fame and it testifies to his eternal security in something like this. You know, there's no question about that. So I don't know how people come up with that theology. Now, preaching would be a lot easier if uh, there was a simple command against all, all alcohol, but there isn't. But if you're drinking at all, the question to ask is, you know, do you really need it and why? My, my own experience, I, I know that I'm best in staying away from it. I've seen the big problems and I've seen the small problems inside of our families, inside of people that I know. I've seen and I've done too many drug and alcohol-related funerals. And I've done more than one. They're tragic. 
I mean, and so it's just not a part of, um, um, I, I just realized not having this part of my life is something that makes me happier. Now, it was non-drinking, content, joyful Christians that helped me discover Jesus Christ. That's because I, I was like Noah. I mean, I was that drunken and degrading person, you know, and, and just praise God for his grace. It is a point to me that God does change sinners, that God does give hope. God does give grace, and he changes people. And here's Noah. He's drunken. He's degraded. And, we, and where we might want to think that our leaders should be perfect, they are not. You know, we, you know, we can't imagine, begin to imagine the trauma that, that Noah experienced in the world. What was, what was life like before the flood? What was the violence that was there? Or the trauma in the ark, seeing that everybody else in the world had died? And the mass destruction, being so close to death. Our, our children's books portray uh, Noah's his kindly old grandfather caretaking the animals. You know, but they don't point out the rough part of Noah, do they? You know, the rough part of this builder who built this ark, this rough part of this man who experienced violence and trauma before, the rough man who experienced life on the ark and coming out of this and, and, and um, choosing this behavior. Noah chooses alcohol for some reason. We know he was a sinner. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and Noah was no exception to that. We shouldn't be surprised that he sins. We shouldn't be surprised that he drinks too much. He, you know, this, these things happen. He was a man that was saved by grace. He was a man that was saved by grace. And we remember that in his life and the life of others. We're people who need grace. There's a couple other takeaways I have as, as I look at the life of Noah. There's probably a lot of things we could come up with, but two things really step out to me. The first thing is not, to not let your guard down. To, to not let your guard down. I mean, notice Noah's sin here. It happens at a time of ease. It doesn't happen at a time of trial. Noah was the man for the trial of the ark, but afterwards, when time was easy, that's when he fell into the sinful behavior. We need to stay alert, and maybe more alert in times of ease. We can be so vigilant when the trial is upon us. We pray, we read the Bible, we get connected with other people, but, but when the trial passes, we go on vacation, we get some money into our bank accounts, and we relax, the suffering goes away, and laxness comes in and, and sin creeps in. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, 8. It describes the devil as a lurking lion ready to pounce on you and to destroy you. And I bet that the devil has far more success after the trial than within it with so many people. Be sober-minded, the scripture says. Be watchful. It's interesting it uses that word sober-minded, right? Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so the question I have for you is you need to be more vigilant in some area of your life. Don't let your guard down. The second thing I, the, the, the second extra that I see in this is how it happened at the end of Noah's life. Happened at the end of his life. It's a good reminder to all of us and especially to our older people that there are sins of youth and there are sins of old age. While age may take away some of the desires that we had when we were younger, may take away the desire for particular sins, it does not take away our ability to sin. And we know that one sin may be replaced with another. And our calling is to finish well. Our call is to keep our eyes fixed on the prize that is ahead. Our call is to use our mouth and our lives to build up and encourage others in the truth, especially the generations to come, to leave a legacy of faith, an example to pass on. May we all finish well. 
Okay, so Noah's sin is a problem, but so is the response of his son Ham. And that leads us into our second point, which I described as respect the sin even when the sin respect the sinner even when the sin is wrong. And Noah's behavior doesn't go unnoticed. His sons become aware of it. Ham discovers it first. And what does the son do? Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, if you look forward to verses 24 through 27, we, we catch some things that are not explicitly said in verse 22, that there's something wrong here. We might also notice what was wrong in it when we compare his actions with his brothers who were commended. Verse 23 talks about his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it both on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So we can compare these two responses, and we can see some things that happen here. So so Ham, let's look at Ham. Ham talks about his father. You can see that in verse 22, right? He tells his two brothers, but he doesn't do anything in order to help them, Shem, to help him. Shem and Japheth, they actually do something. And so while Ham exposes his father's shame by seeing it, talking about it, and doing nothing about it, Shem and Japheth, they preserve his father's dignity. We might ask, where was Ham anyway when they were helping his, their, when they were helping their father? In light of his father's sin, Ham continues sins against him. He ridicules, degrades, and highlights the behavior of his father. Apparently, he revels even in his father's fall and disgrace. I mean, don't we see this all around us? People reveling in the failures of our leaders, degrading political opponents, presuming the worst in others. If someone hurts us or sins in front of us, what do we want to do? We want to hurt them back, right? It happens sometimes in our marriages. But instead of loving each other, that couples sink into the vortex of mutual sin and hurt, just adding one to another. In my mind, there is no doubt that Noah sinned here, but had Ham adds sin to sin in the disrespect of his father. We have no excuse when we add our own sin to the sin of another person. We are accountable for our own actions, even when people sin against us. And God will hold us accountable for our actions. That's why Jesus said that if you have, if um, there's something you have against your brother, you know, before you go and confront him, take the, the, the log out of your own eye before you dress the speck in their own eye. It's because our own issues are the ones we're accountable before God for first. Now the two brothers, what do they do? They do something to preserve their father's dignity. Now something needs to be said about not enabling sinful behavior. We know people who have enabled drunkenness. They've lived with it, they've encouraged it, maybe they've not confronted it as they should. And there are some sins that need to be exposed. Certainly there are. Ongoing sins, perpetual sins, sins of exploitation, sins of sexual and physical abuse, sins of where people misuse power. There are sins of public leaders that need to be especially addressed. And so, please hear me right, there is no call to hide those or excuse abuse under any guise of admission. Those things need to be publicly exposed. Even if they include our leaders, they need to be dealt with. But here Noah's sin is against himself. It's different than the sin of Cain, who murdered his brother, or the sin of Lamech, who murdered another man and took multiple wives, or the the sin of the generations who rejected God in violence before the flood. 
As we saw last week, the, the sin of murder was given a, a, a punishment, which is given injustice. There are sins of weakness that we forgive over, we, we forgive and we cover over them. Usually that happens when it's a relational sin and the person repents. And there are other sins that need to be exposed and that's pretty important, but isn't the point here. The point is for all people, no matter how great their sin, we still work to preserve their dignity and to honor the work of God through them, even as we need to address the behavior or the habit. And Noah's sin did not justify Ham's response. Even when people choose sinful and degrading behavior, we are called to do what we can to restore and not to ridicule. We see this in Galatians 6. So it's because we need to see the image of God in every person. We're called to love. Even if we confront evil, even if we confront people in sin, we're called to love. We forgive, even as we hold people accountable. I like Galatians 6.1. It's, it's meaningful. It talks about this way of helping others. It really shows our motivation. The goal is to take away burdens from others, not to add to them. For Noah, to take away this drunken behavior and, and not to leave him in it. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him to, in a spirit of gentleness. Amen. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So there's no place for ridiculing people for their sin, but expressing the hope of the gospel that they can come out of it. When we ridicule someone for their sin, we leave them there. We consign them to not change. But there are reasons for hope. We breathe gospel hope into people's lives. We share the gospel with them. We might use exhortation. We might even use church discipline. But our goal is restoration. Ridicule blocks that restoration. Words of hope, when covered for sin, that, that restores if you think about the faults of others around you, are you ridiculing them, leaving them in it, or are you praying for them? It's something we need to guard our heart in. So what's Noah's response to this? That's what we see in our next verse. Number three, I, I described, or our, 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 our third point, I mean. Our third point is remember God's greater work and grace in redeeming the nations. So after this, Noah becoming aware of what's happened, he gives what is a prophetic statement. It ends up being a prophetic statement. It shows what's going to happen in the hearts of his uh, children and of their grandchildren, their descendants. And it even has a hint of what God is going to do in redeeming his people. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, I, I have a question as I look at this verse. I, I sometimes wonder if, if Noah's just adding to the problem here. I mean, Noah's sins by getting drunk, then one of his sons handles it wrongly, and then Noah speaks a curse about his grandson. And to me, it looks like an escalating family problem, and it might be. But, but here's the thing, is that none of this happens by accident. I mean, even if Noah sins in this, and I know that he does, but if he does, God chooses to use it to show what's happening in their hearts, his intentions for the future work on earth. Noah prophecies, and the, the thing he says is about Ham's son, Canaan. It's not about Ham, just as Ham hurt Noah, so Ham would know the disappointment that came through one of his sons, and, and Noah's words remind us that our decisions can affect generations to come. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 through 6, and something we see over and over. It describes not bow down, down to idols, Right? It says, you shall not bow down to them, idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so Ham's low view of sin, even his own sin, we pass down through the generations, leaving his descendants vulnerable to others. 
What does it mean? Now, one thing that we want to talk about and understanding what it means is that we need to talk about the so-called curse of Ham. It's a, it's a heresy which, which says that black people are black by the curse of God for Ham's sin here. You know, and so some people believe that. The, the Mormon church used to teach that. Um, other people have taught it in different contexts. It's, it's just not true. I mean, it has no bearing in the Bible. And some people try to use the Bible to defend it, but it's just not true. I mean, first of all, the, the passage has nothing to do with skin color. We see that. Second, there is no connection in the Bible between slavery and skin color. And third, um, these words are about Canaan. They're not about Ham anyway. Anyone who would use this passage to justify slavery by skin color or even slavery itself or to denigrate a race of people does it out of racial hatred and not by God's word, disregarding the rest of the scripture. There's no such thing as the, you know, this heresy of the curse of Ham that says black people are black by the curse of God here. But what we do see happening after this with the descendants of Noah is, is something which is also consistent between all of them is it really, it doesn't matter what you talk about, the descendants of Shem, Japheth, or Ham, all, all of them, they all turn to idolatry and they all turn to false worship. We'll see it next week. We'll see it in the week after that. In the long run, really there is no supremacy of one son over the other in the terms of their, their inherent godliness. There, there just isn't. They all become more, more and more alienated by God but except for God's grace. That's the story of the Bible. You know, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, but there's grace that is given by God. And we see that as he works through one family to be a blessing to all the others. If you fast forward to Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20, you can see how the descendants of Ham uh, grew up into different nations, especially if you look into verse 15 and on, you'd see how... The, the, the Canaanite people, uh, the people who possessed the land of Canaan, that the uh, land of Israel, that the nation of Israel would conquer as they took this promised land. Um, and, so, and so we see the descendants, the nations grow out of that. Not only does Noah address Ham, but he also speaks about Shem and Japheth. Shame, Shem gets the best blessing. We see this starting in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 26. Where Noah also says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah starts off by blessing who? By blessing the Lord. Do you see that? You know, bless the Lord. He uses God's covenant name and he shows ultimately where hope is. Despite his sin, despite any of his son's sin, despite the history of where the world is going to go, he speaks about Shem's God and his God. And they also addresses Shem's prosperity, where Canaan will serve and even Japheth will dwell in Shem's tents. Now, what is God doing here? Again, talking about Genesis chapter 10, we're gonna, we call that the table of nations. And you could read through that on your own. Um, it speaks about the different nations as they grow from the descendants of Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth. And, and it describes the earliest and, and, and most ancient of divisions of the nations. And we see a lot of names that we might even recognize to this day. Some of them are uh, repeated to us in the Bible, and some, like Egypt, continue to this, to this, this very day. Verses 2 through 5 speak of Japheth's descendants and how they spread on the earth. And verses 21 through 31 speak of Shem's descendants and how they uh, spread up on the earth. And as we look at those, we can all find where we uh, trace ourselves back to somehow, some way. You know, my own Anglo-Saxon ethnicity is through uh, Japheth. But 
We would have a spiritual heritage as well. And that spiritual heritage is through Shem. That's what we're going to get to. That's because God is doing something in this and promising he has a blessing of the world through the land, through the line of Shem. Again, remember, none of these nations are better inherently than any other. They all ended up in idolatrous rebellion against God. You know, that's the direction they were going to go soon after this. But God intended to save people from each of these nations. And he does it by choosing one person from one of these lines to be a blessing to the nations. We see this in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2, because he speaks to one of those descendants of Seth, to a man named Abram, later Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation, verse 2, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So of all these nations, he chooses uh, Abram to be a great nation, and then what? Through Abraham, to be a blessing to all the nations. How does that work his way out? We're going to see that over the next two weeks. Now, if you read the genealogy of Luke chapter 3, you'll also see another person in the line of Shem, and that was Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38 speak of his genealogy, and guess where Jesus' genealogy comes from? Again, it comes from the line of Seth. See, the blessing to the world would ultimately be through Jesus Christ. See, the blessings that we have and that we can have in this world, they truly only come through being submitted to Jesus. Isn't that the message of Canaan? Let Canaan be the servant, not just of Shem, but of Shem's, but of Shem's godly descendant. Let Canaan be the servant of Jesus Christ. And may Japheth, the one who dwells in the tents of his brother, may, may he be in the blessing that Jesus Christ brings about. It's a pointer of what true salvation is, what true salvation looks like. It's a prophetic statement looking way ahead to what Jesus would accomplish, knowing that Jesus is our covenant God, the message to Shem, knowing that, 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 um, that eternal life comes in submitting to Jesus Christ. That's the message to, to Canaan. Knowing that, eternal, that, that, that the blessing of doing this means living under Jesus' tent, living under his blessing, which is the word to Japheth. Your eternal life, your blessing, your true blessing for now and eternity comes in submitting yourself to Jesus and living under his banner and knowing him as your sovereign God. But Jesus does another thing here. He also, as we look to Jesus, Jesus helps us to understand this a bit more when he tells us how to think about these nations. See, he wants us to help the nations to hear about him. He wants to bless the nations through the preaching of the gospel. We have good news for the world. And though all people live in a rebellion against God, that God has a plan to redeem and restore people from every nation. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 28, starting verse 18. Jesus came and said to his disciples, again, he's just been crucified, resurrected. He's not gone to heaven yet. He's still on earth between his, between his resurrection and his, and his ascension. And this is what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The table of nations is recorded by God to remind us of God's plan to save people from every one of those nations. We see this as we look at Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. What we see is we look at this glimpse of heaven. 
you know, it's, the revelation is God pulls back the screen and shows us what's going on in heaven. And what do we see? We see people from every nation there. They sang a new song, saying to, they're saying to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests who are God, and they shall reign on the earth. When we think about the nations of the world, that's why we pray for them in our prayer time. This is we want to see you know, God send the winds of awakening into these places come into these nations we pray for. Today we prayed for Ukraine. Today we prayed for China. Today we prayed for Senegal. These nations that we prayed the gospel would come in, change lives, build the church, and that people would be saved and know Christ and be transforming to those people's lives and then to the whole nation. We pray for these nations. We should pray for the nations. God keeps track of the nations. They're in the table of nations, showing us that God knows and he'll save one from every one of them. That's why you're here. That's why I am here. God has saved us by his grace. It's a great reminder for us of God's purpose and mission. So as you see the headlines in the newspaper, pray through the headlines. Pray through what you hear. And pray for the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church in each of those countries you hear about. Now as I conclude, I, I want to get back to the work of Jesus in one more thing. Going back to Noah and his decision and Jesus' work. Because you remember Noah's sin, his, his, his drinking his shame, and, and we see, you know, the work of Ham in, in further shaming him. And we're reminded that that's just not the spirit of Jesus. That's why in this prophecy, God pulls us away from this shameful behavior. And he points us towards those who cover sin, the cover over sin. And that's what Jesus does. Does not shame us for our sin and failures. He covers them. He died for them. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God takes our sin and our shame. And Jesus Christ takes it upon himself, and he covers us with his righteousness. Jesus doesn't overlook the sin. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to full confession. And he often leads us in earthly consequence for our decisions. But when our nakedness is revealed, he covers us and says, you are accepted. You are my child. I don't see your shame. I see my love for you in Jesus Christ. For those of you who've received him, those of you who've known him, do you know that forgiveness for your own self? Have you received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life? And I hope and pray that you have. The love of Jesus leads us into repentance. We, we then turn from sin. We turn from self-destructive behaviors. And we trust in Jesus Christ. We look to him by faith. Have you trusted in Jesus? Does your fear of exposure keep you from him? Do you think he'd ridicule or reject you? No, he turns his eyes away, covering you in his perfect righteousness, seeing you in perfection without any blemish. That's the love of Christ. Receive it. Receive it for yourself. Would you pray, for, pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know what it is to feel shame. We know what it is to feel the shame of sin, to fall short of your commands. And reminded of the good news that there is no shame in Jesus Christ. Father, he doesn't ignore our sins. He doesn't overlook our faults, our failures, or our sins. Father, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Your justice won't allow it. But God, he died for them. He atoned for them. He covers us in his righteousness. God, that is good news for us. And that is good news for the nations. And it is our hope and prayer as we look at the nations that fill this world. That you'd help us to make that good news known into the world. 
for the salvation of souls and the spread of your gospel and the glory of your name. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing our closing hymn, which is...